written, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. And I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all let's pray together Lord Jesus, we do come to you this morning with, with hearts that are absolutely overflowing with thanksgiving. For you have, you have cared for us. You have provided for our needs, great and small. You have, you have cared for us in every single way. Lord, even this past week, you have, you have provided every single thing we've needed for life, to, to live a, a life that, that honors you, to live in this world. You've cared for us to the minute details of our life. And, and Lord, it's, it's, uh, it's often that we just kind of plow through days and weeks and don't even stop to reflect on that and give thanks. And so this morning, Lord, we, we're grateful. We're grateful for, you, for your provision in our lives. And we are particularly grateful that you have loved us with an everlasting kind of a love. A love that, that isn't rooted in our particular performance on any given day. A love that isn't based in our ability to earn your love. But a love that's poured out on us purely by grace. That loves us when we perform well and when we honor you well in our lives. And a love that loves us the same even when we, when we fall, even when we fail. A love that's willing to offer us forgiveness every time. Reach out and pick us up and brush us off and set us back on course. A love that has shown us the depths of which at the cross where you gave your very own son. That we might have eternal life. We are thankful, oh Lord, for that today. And Lord, as we come, we don't come just to be observers um, at a show. We've come here because we, we want to gather with, with, with your children, with brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to gather for the express purpose of doing something, worshiping you. We've come, Lord, expecting, Lord, to offer, uh, Lord, our songs and our prayers, even our attention to your word, uh, to offer those things to you as an offering from us to you. But we also come, Lord, expecting to encounter you here. Believing that you've brought us here for a reason and for a purpose. Believing that you would desire to do a work in our hearts and in our lives even as we, as we sing and pray and study today. So we pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would enlighten them, that we might see you afresh and anew today, that we might know you in deeper ways as we're encountered by you through your word today. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of the hope to which you've called us an everlasting hope, an eternal life. And Father, we're reminded that you um, have prepared us, Lord, not just for this life, but for an eternal life. And so we're called this morning even to make sure that we're not setting our eyes on the things of earth and the things that pertain just to this world. But we pray even now that you would lift our eyes beyond just this life uh, that we would see even this morning and be reminded of our eternal life to which you've prepared us the eternal glory and splendor that you enjoy, that one day we'll experience with you forever. 
in heaven, the place you've prepared for those who know you and love you, a place where Peter even reminds us that you have riches and an inheritance prepared for us, an eternal, an eternal inheritance. Lord, help us not to fall in love with the things of the world, but to look to your greater blessings. And Lord, you've given us this moment. You've given us this opportunity to encounter you. So help us, Lord, to do it well. Particularly, Lord, now as we prepare to open up your word and study, uh, we, we are thankful for your word. It is a treasure to us. It is your full and complete revelation of yourself to us. So help us, Lord, this morning as our pastor leads us. Help us to, uh, to be attentive, to give full attention to you, to cast even in these moments from our minds any thoughts of what happens later this afternoon or whatever concerns we carried with us into this place. But give our full attention to you this morning. Speak to us, Lord, as we sang. Speak to us. Teach us. Draw us into yourself. And we give thanks to you for all things. And we look forward with eager anticipation of what you're going to do in these next moments as we open up your word. And we give thanks for these things for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me remind you of something somebody reminded me of that we failed to announce this morning. That is, next week is Mother's Day. And what do we do on Mother's Day? We bring our baby bottles back, okay? So those baby bottles, you've been filling with dough since um, uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, Make sure they're full this week and you bring them back um, uh, this coming Sunday. I'm about to preach on um, a very challenging passage of Scripture. It's the, uh, this message and next week and for the next few weeks, actually. Um, just an incredible passage of Scripture. It's, a, it's amazing what we will see in the next 30 verses. It's something that cannot be explained fully. Um, it's something that you won't be able to grasp fully. And so we'll look at what Jesus says and we'll rest on that for these next few weeks. It's a very long narrative uh, beginning at um, verse, really verse 19, and it goes through verse 47. This is one of the longest where Jesus talks this long without stopping and letting someone else uh, speak. Um, And so it's a long narrative. It's an important narrative. So important, J.C. Ryle said this. These verses begin one of the most deep and solemn passages in the four Gospels. They show us the Lord Jesus asserting his own divine nature. Nowhere does our Lord dwell so fully on these subjects as in the chapter before us. And nowhere, we must confess, do we find so thoroughly the weakness of man's understanding. So after I read J.C. Ryle saying that, I didn't feel quite so much pressure this week getting this sermon together. Then I read John MacArthur calls this the holy of holies of the gospel of John. Then I felt more pressure. But then we read 
the psalmist in Psalm 139, it says, Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Who is Jesus? And it's so true. Especially when we're, when we're dealing with such things as orthodox Trinitarian theology. You got the Trinity down, you can explain it to us in a way we can understand. Just step right up. And so um, we're dealing with these matters in the next few weeks. Jesus, in this case, expressing his equality with God, his unity with God, his oneness with God. Hard. It's very hard. I'm sure you've heard this quote before, but it's an important quote, especially at a time like this and when you deal with this doctrine. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Hopefully you've read it before because hopefully you've read this book. Many people say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There are actually three options. Um, Jesus is who he claimed to be. God. Or number two, he isn't who he claimed to be. And he knew it. That would make him even greater liar than what Scripture calls Satan, the father of lies. That would make him the greatest of all deceivers that he wasn't who he claimed to be and he knew he wasn't. The third option would be that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be and he didn't know it. And that just make him nuts. Just a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis said. But Lewis is right. You cannot say he's a good teacher. You cannot say he's a good moral teacher. There's no middle option in this discussion. Because if there was, then you'd be saying, in essence, that I believe in a good moral teacher who is a deceptive, crazy liar. It makes no sense. Jesus is God, or we're fools, and he's fooled millions and millions and millions over the last 2,000 years. It's the greatest hoax that's ever been perpetrated on mankind. Those are the two options, and those are the only two options.
John knew it. We saw in the first verse of this gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. And now he records at the beginning of this chap- chapter this, uh, this miracle, and he records it specifically because it happened on a Sabbath. Apparently there's this ongoing, we know there's this ongoing argument with Jesus and the Jewish leaders about the Sabbath. And let me just give you a heads up that we might not get past the introduction today. John just sticks this particular miracle here. We know that at this time in the ministry of Jesus from the other Gospels, that there are at least four other miracles he performed on the Sabbath and was attacked for those as well. But John just puts this particular story in that Chaplain Smith shared with us last week. Is that what we have to call you on these days? And what happens? Jesus has healed this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. You know what that's like? You think about legs that have not been used for 38 years. I mean, that's not just get up and walk, which is what Jesus said. But that's, those are muscles that have atrophied and, 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 and just miraculously and all of a sudden, it's all restored. And he gets up and walks. There by the pool of Bethesda, take up your bed walk and the Jews instead of and by the way too when when this passage says the Jews it really means the 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 Jewish leaders it's not just a group of Jews showed up no it's the group of Jewish leaders that are following him around and accusing him instead of glorifying God they accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath They're great legalists, as Pastor Greg told us last week. And because of this violation of the Sabbath, they are seeking to kill him. It's not just a one-time thing, as I told you. This has been an ongoing thing between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. John just picked this particular story uh, to take off on this next discussion. But for violating the Sabbath, death was the penalty. Verse 16 and 17. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. That that, Right there at um, verse 17 where it says, Jesus answered them. It's not that your Bible might say Jesus said to them. It's not really just said to them. By the way, We don't have anything that his opponent said. So here's Jesus, to some people, a good moral teacher who perceived, looked into the minds of those Jewish leaders and knew exactly what they were thinking. No word from his opponents at this point. He just responds to their opposition and their plots. And we don't get this reading the English, but Jesus answered them. That word answered is rare. It's only used two times 
in this gospel, this way, this word, this particular Greek word. And Jesus is responding to their charge. It's like a legal defense. Um, The word is used in legal documents of that time period. And so it appears that even now Jesus has a sense that he's already on trial. He didn't just answer. He's giving a defense for what is going on in their hearts and lives. And so the judge of all the earth is arguing his case in court. Now, there are some people that would say after verse 18 that there's a period of time or around verse 18 either before or after there's a there's a period of time and this because this uh, narrative is so long it, it, this could be some sort of official hearing where he's having to say these things and having to give his defense although we won't ever know that that's not one of the questions at the top of our list we're going to ask when we go to heaven But in defense of these actions, he says, I I have not done any more than what my father has done. For God continued to carry on his works of providence and, and his works of grace on the Sabbath as well as all the other days. And Jesus saying, and I'm doing the same thing that my father did. There was also this this debate. We don't have time to go into it. You're probably not interested anyway. But the, the, the Jews would debate back in those days whether God was bound to the law. Ongoing debate um, about that. So it was not a breaking of God's law of the Sabbath But what has taken place is the interpretation of that law has gone haywire. Pastor Greg last week read us some of those 39 uh, different rules that have been created. And you know, in Orthodox Judaism today, it's still going on. My daughter lives in... In Brooklyn, New York, and she lives in the Williamsburg neighborhood, and and there, you know, there are more Hasidic Jews in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, than there are in Israel. And those Orthodox Jews, uh, a story that came out back in April of 20 years ago, 22, April of 1992, tenants. Let three apartments in an Orthodox neighborhood in Israel burn to the ground while they asked a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law. Observant Jews are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. In the half hour it took the rabbi to decide, yes, the fire spread to two neighboring apartments. And so that that sort of legalism is still going on in Orthodox Judaism today. That's what Jesus was facing. But you know what? If Jesus walked in here today, he'd see legalism. 
and we'd be attacked for the same thing. Frankly, if God took a nap on the Sabbath, then God just rested on it on the Sabbath. He took a nap like you and I do on Sunday, then every Saturday the entire universe would just implode. It would disintegrate. We still exist because God doesn't sleep on the Sabbath. In fact, the word create, the Hebrew word create, bara, in Genesis, means a sustained action. We, if Jesus rested on the Sabbath as the Jews interpreted, then we would be annihilated as God takes his hands off of his work. It's in him we live and move and have our being. Creation didn't end on the sixth day. And to paraphrase it, Jesus said, in essence, though my father rested on the seventh day, he only rested from his work of creation, but continued his providential work in the world, showing merciful care for his creation, healing the sick, causing the sun to rise, causing the grass. You think the grass stopped growing today? Because God had to rest. He's tired. And the psalmist tells us, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And besides, the rest we know from Scripture, from that, this particular teaching, that the rest of God on the seventh day was given for whose benefit? Ours. Because God is demonstrating that there's a pattern of rest that's necessary for our well-being. Why? Because we are finite created beings. And we need it. Don't go to sleep yet. Paul understood this. Colossians 1. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. God were to take his hands off of us in a moment, the universe would be annihilated. The problem with the Sabbath was bad enough, and he deserved death because of it, at least according to them. But then he goes on and he says, what does he say? <clears throat> My father is working until now, and I am working. And when Jesus says those words, my father, the Jews went ballistic. They're, they are pulling their hair out at this point. The Sabbath Dishonoring the Sabbath is bad enough, but to say, my father, to make yourself equal with God. Now, he didn't say our father. He didn't say your father. He said my father. And the Jews 
rightly understood what he was saying. What was he saying? Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was, he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. They interpreted him right. They knew what he was saying. And that's blasphemy. I mean, making yourself equal with God was bad enough. They, they, you know, they wouldn't even write God's name. You, you, uh, writing Yahweh, they would only use the consonants, not the vowels, and writing out that word. I've got three Jewish friends. Well, I've got more than three Jewish friends. But I've got three that I regularly talk to via email or on the phone here in Charleston. And when I get an email from a gen, it's normally about religion. It's not, our conversations are not, you know, hey, thanks, thank you evangelicals for supporting Israel. You know, those sorts of emails. And, and, um, uh, but we talk about other things, questions they have. And, and, and all three of them, when I get an email from them, and when they, men, when they type God, when they mention God, this is what it looks like. In the email. You may have Jewish friends you get email from too. I mean that to type out his name is blasphemy. So you can imagine what happens when Jesus declares himself equal with God. And it's at this point, I think it's at this point, verse 18, where the official persecution of Jesus began, which finally ended with his death and resurrection. The days that followed, he confronted these enemies with their evil desire to kill him. We see that over and over and over. Even in this gospel, they hated him and they didn't have a cause to hate him. Listen, you read through all the gospels, read through every single gospel. Not one person denied one miracle that Jesus performed. You notice that? None of the Jewish leaders say, you didn't do that. You couldn't have done that. Nobody said that. Nobody denied that he was doing what he was doing. They hated him without a cause. They ignored his good deeds. He'd performed to the helpless people, the hopeless people that he encountered. They centered their attention on destroying him. And we see that just in John to chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? The next chapter. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. And because of my words, my, my word finds no place in you. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. And we see that on and on and on. Verse 
They rightly saw that when Jesus claimed himself to be unique in a unique relationship with God, a relation that was in effect assuming equality with God. They saw that when he said that. They knew clearly that when Jesus said that God was his father in this unique way, he was declaring himself God. Augustine said of this passage, Behold, the Jews understand what the Arians do not understand. Back in the fourth century, in um, the year 325, there was the first council of Nicaea. And that council was brought together to deal with the Arian controversy. And that controversy was, in effect, a controversy where Arians believed that Jesus was not deity, was not God. And subsequently, out of that, we have the Nicene Creed, which declares who Jesus is. Today, uh, the Arians of today are Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't believe the deity of Jesus. Paul, speaking about Jesus in Philippians 2.6, said, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, it was something that he, had to, he, he didn't have to work toward. It wasn't, wasn't anything that he had to grasp. He had to take hold of. Jesus is not equal with God as another God. Jesus is not equal with God as a competing God, which these Jews may have thought he was saying. And the irony is that these Jews take offense at Jesus' claim to deity, but they've understood exactly what he was saying, and yet their understanding of Jesus' equality with God needs some explanation. It needs some adjustment. We see that in the next 30 verses. I mean, Christians, we won't accept a ditheism, would we? Or a tritheism, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three gods. We wouldn't accept that. The Jews wouldn't either. It's the irony of all this. So he tells them, you're correct in thinking that I've claimed to be equal with God, but you're incorrect in your thinking that I'm setting myself against God. There's this perfect union of will. There's this perfect union of action. There's this perfect union of authority. There's this perfect union of affections. There's this perfect union of nature. There's this perfect union of character between me and my Father. So he spends the next 30 verses defending his violation of the Sabbath. Charles Simeon had a, um, a rather funny quote a couple hundred years ago, we're indebted to their perverseness 
for one of the clearest and most important statements in all of sacred volume. Then he goes on to say, The whole Christian world is much indebted to the zeal of the blind and bigoted, persecuting Jews in our Lord's day, since they elicited many important truths which might not otherwise have been brought to light. And so we're going to see Jesus claims, we're going to start seeing Jesus claims um, of unity, his claim of equal authority, and his claim of equal honor in this passage we have before us. First, his unity, verse 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Son cannot act independently of the Father. That's really a thesis statement, I, I think, more than anything, dealing with the complete unity and dependence of the Son on the Father. Clear claim to equality with the Father. The unique Son of God has an intimate relationship of unity with the Father. And if he can make this point, like I said, this is somewhat of a thesis statement here. If he's writing a paper, it only takes 29 verses. But if he can make this case, then the case is closed. Obviously, God can't break his own commandments about the Sabbath or anything else. And Christ is attempting to show that he acted in complete unity with God the Father in performing this healing on the Sabbath day. And he doesn't do anything independently. You see that? The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. He can't do anything independently from the Father. He's he's fully submitted to the Father's will. But this submission only comes by choice. This submission does not come by coercion. This is not some inferior nature in Him that He has to be dependent on the Father. We can. We can act independently from the Father. Don't anybody want to volunteer? Testify? We can and we do. We're sinners. I don't want to obey the Father's will many times. I can act independently of Him, but Jesus can't. Jesus can't rebel against the will of His Father. This theme sort of bracket, there's a bookends here. Uh, the verse I'll end with next week, um, verse 19, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then verse 30 is the other side of the frame. I can do nothing on my own. For the only one who could conceivably do whatever the Father does must be as great as the Father. You see that? Anyone who can do conceivably do whatever the Father does must be as divine as 
as the Father. And the glue that binds the Father and Son together is the love of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. The relationship between the, 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 the first and second members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, is not one of master and slave. It's not one of employer and employee. The relationship is the Father and the Son united, bound together by the love of the Father to the Son and the love of the Son to the Father. And the Father takes the initiative to share. See what he says in verse 20? To share everything with his Son. Not only uh, does this verse show us this intimacy of love between them. Father loves the Son. But the words, that's so important. It shows him all that he himself is doing. Another one of these wonderful glories of Christ. Which means that the Father and Son have absolute unity of intelligence. Equality of intelligence between the Father and the Son. That's hard. Can you wrap your head around that? No. I'll answer for you. It's a rhetorical question. Let's put it in human terms. Tried to. And I wrote out this question. (laughs) What would be the use of discussing quantum physics with an illiterate person? In fact, what would be the use of discussing quantum physics with Frank? What's the value of taking a child in the first grade and showing him the answer to a very complicated algebraic problem? Who is capable of understanding all the ways and workings of God? Certainly no creature. Fallen man is incapable of knowing God. The believer learns gradually and slowly and we are taught what we learn about God by whom? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So who could God show the full counsel of his mind? He says it. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Who could he show that to? The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. So it's clear. If the Father shows all things that He is doing, then they must be of the same mind. And that they are absolutely equal in intelligence. Christ has the, the ability to apprehend and to comprehend all the things that the Father does. How many times do you say, why did God do that? (laughs) Jesus has the ability to comprehend everything that the Father does perfectly. 
No one but God could measure the Father's mind perfectly. And Jesus can do that. If it's true that the Father loves the Son, it's no less true that the Son loves the Father. The love of the Father for the Son is displayed in His continuous disclosure of all that He does to the Son. The love of the Father is displayed, the love of the Son is displayed in His perfect obedience, which even led to the cross. John fourteen thirty one. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Leon Morris said, Jesus' actions do not proceed from merely human motivation. He acts only in accordance with the divine revelation. Thus, he looks forward to doing greater works. That's the very end of that verse 20. Greater works, for he will be shown greater works. The result will be that his hearers will be astonished. The following verses show that these greater works are the Son's activities in giving life and judgment. That leads us to authority. Verses 21 and 22. There are two illustrations here. The authority in the realm of life and authority in the realm of judgment. Unity of authority in raising the dead and giving them life, both physically and spiritually, is what he's talking about here. Now, I suspect Jesus is, might be thinking, although I don't know the mind of God, that if you thought, or at least in 21st century terms, if you thought it was a crime to heal a couple of crippled legs on the Sabbath, gag on this one. I'm going to be raising people from the dead. And we saw that in chapter 11. Pastor Greg preached Easter Sunday. One of his greater works, you see that at the end of 20? And greater works than these will he show them, so that you may marvel. For as the Son, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Those are the greater works he was talking about in verse 20. The giving of life. The Son gives life to those he's pleased to give life to. And just as he, to us, just randomly, but there was not random, there was a plan in all of this. Around that pool of Bethesda, there were many, 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 many invalids, many, many sick people waiting for this magical water to bubble so that somebody can throw them in and they can be healed. Great superstition going on in that place at that time. Many, many, many people there around that pool. And Jesus goes and chooses this one man. Get up. Pick up your bed and walk. And just as he chose that one man out of that crowd of sick people, he chooses those to whom he's going to give life to. That giving of life includes spiritual, eternal life. It includes a resurrected body. Now, we, we, we see this picture in the 
in the raising of Lazarus. We see this picture too spiritually in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. It's just like all those people around that pool. All those people just lost souls. You know, dead souls and dead bodies are the same thing to Jesus. He can raise them both. And all those dead souls are in that pool and he chose that one man. You remember when he chose you? Well, it was before the foundation of the world, but when you recognized it. One of the prerogatives of one of the prerogatives of deity is the prerogative of life and de- over death. King of Israel asked Naaman in Second Kings chapter five verse seven a rhetorical question: "Am I God to kill and make alive?" He recognized God was the only one who had the power of life and death. And the Son has the same power as the Father, including the power to raise the dead. He's done it before. You know, the daughter of Jairus in Mark 5, and the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7, raising of Lazarus in John 11. And one day Jesus will raise all from the dead. Skip down. We'll look at these verses next week in more detail. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In the hands of Jesus, dead bodies and dead souls are the same under his rule. He holds the keys to death and hell. In Him is life. He is life. Paul tells us, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And legalism, this Jewish legalism, and our own legalism is incapable of giving life because the letter of the law does what? It kills And secondly, first, um, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Authority in the realm of judgment. The Son has the same authority as the Father, including the authority to judge all. It's the prerogative of God only, but it's another demonstration of the deity of Jesus. Unity of authority in executing judgment the Father has given to the Son. And Jesus just turns the tables on these that He's talking to. Now He said, you thought you were sitting in judgment on Me. What you don't realize is that I'm going to sit in judgment over you. And the legalism seeks to judge others. But it will be condemned by God. Man-made rules. Man-made rules can never gain the favor of a sovereign God who saves by grace through faith. Man-made rules can never 
gain the favor or receive the favor of a sovereign God who saves by grace through faith. They just don't go together. God's been recognized for a long, 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 long time as the judge of all the earth. Abraham recognized him as such. Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Jews recognized that as well. Throughout all the pages of the Old Testament, God frequently exercises judgment in the lives of his covenant people and other nations as well. By the end of the age, there will be this one last great judgment. When all would be judged with small and gray, we read about that in Revelation 20. And Jesus insists here that the office of judge, whether in the present day or whether in the last day, it's been entrusted to him, the office of judgment. Back in, I wasn't going to do this, but I will. It's called a captive audience. John three seventeen, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That word condemn means judge. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the first time he comes... The judgment that we'll see on the last day did not take place. He came to seek and to save the lost. The Son has been given the office of judgment, though. It's been entrusted to Him. That doesn't mean that He's going to exercise judgment independently of the Father because He does everything in dependence upon the Father. For even the judgment He exercises is a, is a willing submission to the will of the Father. And then lastly, we see honor. Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so in our present day, the, um, the, uh, the religion, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, those who do not see the deity of Jesus Christ, do not honor the Son. Therefore, they don't honor the Father either. Living in a false, corrupt Religion. Let's further claim to deity here. If the Son were not God, then it would be it would be wrong. It would be sinful to honor the Son just as you honor the Father. And it also means that if we don't honor the Son, we don't really honor the Father either. A.T. Robertson said, Jesus claims the same right to worship from men that the Father has. And the Jewish leaders now, their heads are about to explode. There are many groups that pretend to honor God, but they dishonor Jesus. Perfect revelation of God. 
they demonstrate and that they don't honor the Father at all. Listen, there will be this day, one day, when every lost people who hate Jesus, those who killed Jesus, believers, everyone, those who have gone on before us, those who are still living, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will honor the Son. The only question is whether you'll benefit from such a confession. It's impossible to claim to honor the Father when you deny Christ, His equality and the personhood of equality and the authority as equality and activity and as equality in worship. You deny that, you cannot honor the Father. And the legalism going on in that day and going on in our day seeks to exalt self rather than directing genuine worship to God the Father. And John Stott says it better than anybody. If Jesus, who thus taught with authority, was the Son of God made flesh, we must bow to his authority and accept his teaching. We must allow our opinions to be molded by his opinions, our views to be conditioned by his views, and this includes his uncomfortable and unfashionable teaching. You see, we've just gone through a couple of verses, and there are many, many more. But frankly, his opinion is the only one that counts. The great God of the universe, the Son who is equal with him, not only declares with his words, but also declares with his actions that he is the one true God. Many false religions and many people who deny this, even as the Jews did on that day when Jesus healed a sick man by a pool. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of those who would deny that he is God. Those willing to honor him today by hearing and by responding to his voice. Those who are willing to honor Him today by responding to His voice, you will be honored on that last day. Hallelujah. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, when He comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May you honor Jesus Christ, our God. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a closing song. And during that song, I encourage you to...
you need prayer or um, needs answers to your question or someone to speak to, Pastor Greg, some of our elders and others will be in the back. And we just encourage you during that song to make your way back there. Speak to them. If you're a part of one of these religions, I've consider his words today. Read this chapter over and over and over. Flee from that corrupt religion. Receive Christ as your Savior. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for the one whom because of your love, for him and for us, sent him to die on that cross in our place. So we wouldn't have to pay the price. We worship and honor you this day for your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. In and sing. In and sing. In and sing. In and sing.